Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Notebook. Uh, this is uh, Marc-Antoine Godin alongside Arpen Basu on November 13. Busy weekend for you, Arpen. You had, uh, the Canadians had two games. A surprising win mm -hmm. against Boston and a somewhat, uh, should we say, deflating loss against uh, the Canucks. But it was a bit... Uh, it was a very yeah, meh game on Sunday. It was a very meh game. I don't think it was deflating. Like it didn't. It wasn't the equivalent. Like the Boston. If the Boston game equated to the game they played against Vegas, even though they lost that game, yeah, this was not the Canadians coming out against Arizona totally flat. You know, this this was a situation where the Canadians just got beat and didn't play exceptionally poorly. Mm -hmm. Let's say. I mean, but they were. They were in the game. I thought Martin St. Louis' assessment after the game where he said he was okay with it and that it could have gone either way, maybe. But it wasn't a, It wasn't deflating in that sense where, where as soon as they played the next game in Arizona that you saw that this team had not actually learned anything and there was no standard set and all that stuff. I don't think you could, the same thing applies. Um, and overall, you know, everyone – if anyone looked at the weekend back-to-back -back with Boston and Vancouver – and said, oh, the Canadians will come out of that with a split, I don't think anyone would have complained. No, no. So I think they mission accomplished as far as that. Plus, if you add the Detroit game in, um, you know, I'd say the Canadians are trending upward after a pretty bad downward spiral prior to that. Okay, so today, uh, speaking of trending upwards, we're going to talk about Uri Slavkovsky, who had a, who had a very good uh, weekend, and he seems to be trending upwards. Um, two guys, actually, two former first-round picks uh, are standing out the... Uh, Uh, you know, these days, obviously, Safkowski, but also Caden Gooley. So we're going to touch on, on those two guys. Um, some 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 news, some, you know, there, there are discussions around a new contract for Samuel Montembeau that have uh, started, albeit timidly, but uh, they, there's, there's, there are talks going on. So we'll touch on that, too. Um, we've got uh, we've got our mailbag. Um, that's I, I'm very happy because our listeners send us a ton of questions every week. So there's plenty to choose questions. from. I love it. Yeah, and they're good questions. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's going to take up a lot of time on the, on the show today. For right. Sure. Exactly. But first, um, well, uh, listen, this is a, uh, this is a hall of fame, hall of fame day in the NHL. Mm -hmm. Uh, Caroline Wallet is getting in, uh, Pierre Turgeon, former Canadians captain is getting in. And as a shameless plug, I will encourage everybody who can read French to go uh, read the piece that I ghost wrote <laughs> uh, for, uh, with with Pierre Turgeon. We spent like an hour 45 on the phone together and it basically we mm -hmm. we went through his whole career and got his comments on a, tons of stuff. You know, uh, the, the Dale Hunter hit, uh, uh, his, his best years uh, with the Islanders is... You know his time, obviously, as the Canadians' captain. Um, so, and it was—it's a first-person um, article, but it's—I I suggest everybody to go read it. Um, yeah, I do too. Yeah, and um, but but our, it's interesting because there's also one other guy who's going in the in the hall who's a bit—he's connected to the Canadians in certain aspects, and it's Mike Vernon. So. Yeah, Mike Vernon's Mike Vernon's an interesting. First of all, you know, obviously he faced the Canadians uh, in the Cup final, um, won the Cup on uh, on Montreal Forum Ice, um, which was it's part of his Hall of Fame, obviously resume. Um, and so, you know, our colleague Pierre LeBrun had a story out um, 
talking about how close Mike Vernon was to being traded to Detroit. Um, oh, no, sorry, Patrick not Mike Quart. Vernon. Patrick Roy. Patrick Roy got traded. was how close he was to getting traded. Or that he was at least in discussions of getting traded to Detroit, which is ironic because that's the team that obviously knocked him out of Montreal with the big win um, and would have greatly impacted Mike Vernon's Hall of Fame resume um, because he wouldn't have been on those Detroit Cup teams. Um, that followed, and he had just kind of arrived in Detroit at that time. So that was an interesting little connection. But you have an even more interesting connection between these two guys that I want you to share with the listeners because this is one of my favorite stories you've ever done, and we've rehashed it many times, but I feel like a lot of our listeners don't know this, and this is the best This is the best Mike Vernon connection to the Canadians <laughs> that you could possibly imagine. Yeah, well, I wrote that in 2015, so that's a that's a long time ago. But yeah. I, I, spoke... I still feel enough people don't know this story, though. This has to be spread far and wide. Yeah. It's the best. So I spoke to Mike Vernon for that story. And Mike Vernon said, okay, the details are, are, are as follows. So there used to be a restaurant in Montreal, uh, Le, 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 Le Cascro du Coin, Mo's Diner, as it was nicknamed in English. Yeah. A lot more, more people knew it as, as Mo's Diner. Uh, so Jerry Fleming's mom was a waitress at Mo's Diner. Jerry Fleming, the coach of David Reinbacher in Cloton. Really? His mother worked as a waitress at Mo's Diner for more than 20 years, the graveyard shift at Mo's Diner. No way. Oh, that's I swear great. To God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's all connected. <laughs> it's so, all connected. Yeah. So, uh, so Mo's Diner or the Casco du Coin uh, was located, you know, right next door, right in front of the old Montreal Forum. So mm -hmm. back in the day, Mike Vernon has been traded to Detroit. Uh, he spent the first nine years of his career in, in Calgary. He was an Alberta guy. And at some point, you know, he had gone to the, he had won the Stanley Cup uh, with, with, with the Flames. But at some point, the burden, the pressure of being in his hometown and, and playing for the Flames had become too much. So he asked for a trade to Doug Reisbra, the then general manager. It took a year, but eventually it got done. And now he was uh, he was playing for the, uh, the, the, the Detroit Red Wings, and the Red Wings are in town. And as a lot of people, uh, a lot of players know, back then, uh, the, the, the players would go, either the Canadians players or the visiting teams, they could go mm -hmm. and have breakfast before morning skate. Uh, those are, that's a different era. Uh, yeah. At most diner. So, you know, right. there's nothing like two greasy eggs with plenty of bacon and, and hash browns before morning skate. A good Just hangover like, cure, for sure. Exactly. <laughs> Many a hangover was cured at Moe's Diner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, so Mike Vernon goes for, for his breakfast, and uh, as he gets in, uh, he sees Patrick Roy, who's sitting at the counter, uh, mm. just about ready to finish his meal. And uh, Patrick Roy is saying, ah, you know, come here. And uh, so they sit down. And didn't, they didn't know each other all that well. They had not fought yet. They had faced uh, oh, yeah. they had faced one another. I mean, obviously in the finals and they had played against each other. But they mm -hmm. didn't, didn't have a personal connection uh, right. at the time. So, but obviously they knew they knew each other's face enough. So Patrick Roy says, oh, you know, says, come here, sit down, let's chat. And Patrick Roy was really in a, in a, in a bad mood and in a bad way. And he started saying how pressure had gotten to him and how he was thinking about retirement and whatnot. And, and Mike Vernon says, you know, 
I went through this when I was in Calgary and at some point it got too much. So I had asked for a trade. And before you start thinking of retirement uh, and, and, and things like that and thinking that you have, you know, you're done with, with hockey, you're still young, you had plenty of, uh, of excellent years in front of you. Why don't you ask for a trade? You'll see it'll be, it'll be wonderful. Uh, it's probably the, 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 the best thing you can do. But the crazy thing is that this breakfast happened on December 2nd, 1995. The very <laughs> day that Patrick Roy raised his hands, gave up 10 goals, and, and it ended up being the end of his career in Montreal. Yes, so did the walk the walk by Mario Tremblay twice to tell Ronald Corey I just played my last game in Montreal. Exactly. And and yeah. my Ferdinand was not impressed when I when I talked to him about that. He he was not impressed by the way that Mario Tremblay handed, handled Patrick Roy that night, but because he mm -hmm. thought that he it was humiliating. Uh so Vernon, you know, he it, it's that that night he he felt so bad. He thought, did I trigger something? You know, did that did I uh It's like an in, in inception, you know, that I plant an idea in his head right. and the very same night it turned into this. Yeah, <laughs> so, it manifested itself that way, yeah. Yeah, so he sort of freaked out and he says, you know, as soon as the game was over, I changed and I ran to the bus and I mean, I couldn't get out of the <laughs> building as, as fast as <laughs> fast enough, you know. So yeah. so that's how it happened. So the whole, the whole thing, it proves we had, you know, Uh, different details of how things were, you know, had been simmering and, and long in between Patrick Roy and the Canadians, between Patrick Roy and his head coach. But there's that other ingredient that comes from a guy that had nothing to do with the situation, but he's a, he's yeah. part of the goalie fraternity, had gone through a similar thing and said, why don't you get traded? Well, sh that idea really made its way in the span of, what, 14, 15 hours Because right. uh, it all came down to uh, to a head uh, the, the, that very same night. So that's to me that that's bunkers. And yes, it is. <laughs> and so congratulations to Mike Vernon uh, for your induction into the Hall of Fame. And frankly, had Patrick Waugh been traded to Detroit, we would not have gotten the Mike Vernon Patrick Waugh fight. We might not have gotten those crazy Avalanche Detroit Red Wings rivalries that were so amazing to watch. Um, none of that might have happened, and Mike Vernon might have wound up losing his job to a guy who he recommended ask for a trade. So it would have it just so many different things would have happened, but that breakfast to be a fly on the wall, if we could find the waiter or waitress who served yeah. them that morning, that would be a hell of a story. If you're out there and happen to be watching our podcast, I did ask Jerry Fleming if he thought his mom might have been it. And he's like, oh, I doubt it. Not at that time. You know, she yeah. worked like she dealt with all the, all the kind of the drunken hooligans who came in overnight um, at the end of their night. But Um, but if you're out there listening and you happen to be working that morning at Moe's Diner, please contact us, basuangode at gmail.com. I'm serious. <laughs> I'm dead serious. I would like to talk to you very badly. But congratulations to Mike Vernon and the entire Hall of Fame class, obviously Pierre Turgeon, who will be joining the Ring of Honor and will be honored uh, in Montreal prior to the game Tuesday against, uh, against the Calgary Flames. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> as, as, as coincidence would have it. Um, but back to back to current day Canadians yes. matters. Um, not only that, but future Canadians matters. Uh, you know, I think this weekend, when you look at the weekend, yes, the Canadians played well, and there were a lot of people that you could look at and 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 say, you know, this guy did this. You know, obviously the Sean Monahan line continued doing what they do. 
Um, Sean Monaghan himself continues producing, which is kind of also a nice storyline with Calgary coming into town. Yeah. Um, and we'll get into we'll get into that Sean Monaghan trade with Calgary a little bit later. But um, you know, you look at the weekend, and to me, like the two standouts, and not just the weekend, but really the season today, Caden Gooley is is taking a step that I thought I think all of us knew he would take. I don't think we knew he would take it right now. The step that he's taking, it's it's he has not even played sixty NHL games yet, and he is. He's going into veteran status yeah. as far as defensemen are concerned uh, at age 22. He just turned 22 not long ago. So that's one thing. And then Uri Slavkovsky um, set a new career high for shots on goal, a new career high for shot attempts, um, and has been playing significantly better. I thought over the weekend, and I kind of wrote about this last night, but you look at the two games and you look at the stat sheet for the two games against Boston and Vancouver, and it looks like, they were two different versions of the player. You know, the Boston stat sheet is, is largely empty for Slavkovsky. He got one shot, um, handful of shot attempts. Actually, I have it here. I may as well not guess. Uh, you know, but didn't didn't really uh, do much in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, of things that get marked on the NHL's event report. Uh, and then the next night goes out, six shots on goal, ten shot attempts. New career high in both. And you might think, okay, well, one game he was early on it. The other game he wasn't. Frankly, I th- I thought he was on it both games. And if I, if I had to pick one game where he was better than the other, I would pick the Boston game. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought he was really, really effective on Saturday night. Um, but, I mean, the biggest thing with him, to me at least, and I'll pass it over to you, but his assertiveness and his decisiveness with the puck. And he mentioned after the game on Sunday, he's like, I'm trying to be aggressive before I even get the puck. So they get that extra half second to work with. And you really see it in his play that he's not, he's not out there thinking at all, which is when he was, when he was kind of going through a bit of a bad phase, uh, particularly in Vegas and Arizona, um, even against Winnipeg prior to that, even against Columbus prior to that, you could see him sort of thinking on the ice. Nothing was quick. No, it was, everything was laborious. Decisions took too long to make. It was, it was a difficult. It was a difficult stretch. Now, he's decisive. He's assertive, and and he's making things happen. Um, even when he doesn't register a shot, he's making things happen for his teammates. And so, I think the version of the player we saw this weekend, and even against Detroit on Thursday, is a definite step in the right direction. Even if he's still sitting on one goal and one assist in 15 games this season. Yeah, I think that it's always a a difficult balance to uh, to to find between. Being assertive, do not hesitate in making your plays, and at the same time, not rush them, and take the time that's at your disposal. Understand that you have time to do that. Slow the game down if need be, like Sean Monahan does so well, and mm-hmm. and and build, create some time for yourself. So this is this is a tough adjustment, and I th- but I think that he's been he's been prone to more. Uh, Taking too long and getting getting the the puck picked off, or if he tries to pass, it gets stopped, or he tries a shot, it gets blocked. So um, there's in that sense, I I I feel, I feel as though it's part of a a larger adjustment to a guy still trying to find the quickness of uh, or, or or the execution speed 
that's that fits the frame of an NHL rink and not European side rink. Um, but that being said, I, I think he said something very interesting after the game yesterday because he says, in order to give myself some more space and give myself some more time, I understand now that I have to use my strength, use my size to create some space for myself and basically open things up with my size. And that's how in a more confined space, I'm going to a more confined rink. Uh, I'm going to be able to create to that, that newfound space yeah. and, and time. And that's, I think that's what he's been doing so well lately. Uh, yeah. And that, it doesn't, and that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean hitting guys and plowing them into the boards. It's using his size effectively, you know, like yeah. exactly what you're saying. It's not. And so if you look at the hit counter, uh, I think after the boss, I think last night, I think he had no hits, but still, that's still, he was physically, he was battling in front of the net. He was using his size in other ways. Uh, I'll share a conversation I had with a scout uh, during the game last night uh, on Sunday night against the Canucks. I mean, I wrote about it in my piece, but just, you know, it's, it's for those who didn't read it. Um, he mentioned how, you know, bigger players do take time. So, and, and he said, once he gets heavy, he's going to be really good. I was like, what the hell are you talking about once he gets heavy? He's 230 pounds. He's like the 12th heaviest forward. I looked it up. He's the 12th heaviest forward to play an NHL game this season. I'm like, what do you mean heavy? That's ridiculous. It's like, no, no, no. I don't mean like heavy is in weight. I mean playing heavy. Yeah. When he starts to play heavy, then you'll see him be at his best. But that takes time to learn how to do that. And and so the process that Slavkovsky is describing is something that NHL people know can be difficult. And When you look at a guy like, say, Chris Kreider, for instance, mm -hmm. Jamie Benn is another one who, who needed some time to kind of become who he became eventually. Um, you know, bigger guys generally need to navigate that and need to, need to figure out the right balance between making skill plays and, and being a skilled forward and using your size effectively. Like Chris Kreider is not going to go out and kill someone along the board. He might. Especially if he's a goalie, but he might he might get sorry couldn't, <laughs> couldn't help myself. But he's not. But he uses his his size and his and his and his physical gifts extremely effectively without necessarily being a brutal, uh, big hitting forward. You know, like he's no one would say that Chris Kreider is not a physical forward, but he's not necessarily hitting everything that moves. And I think that's the. That's what Slavkovsky, that balance is what he needs to find. And he's, the fact that he's realizing it um, kind of in real time, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. this was, this was an eye-opening game from him. Um, but again, to me, the Boston game was even better just because of the, the team they were facing, the way the Canadians were playing and the way that he incorporated into that. And so, Let's see where it goes. You know, Marte saying we prior to the game when I when I mentioned a time when Slavkovsky was struggled, refused to admit that he had been struggling at any point. Yeah, and I'm really sorry. didn't like the use of that word. I know, but it's 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 a semantics thing. If I had said, if I had asked a question, you know, when Slavkovsky was a little was not at his best earlier, what are the differences? I want to know what the differences in his eyes are between the Slavkovsky now and that Slavkovsky that we saw against Columbus, Winnipeg, Arizona, yeah. and Vegas. And he got hung up on the word struggling. So mental note, if I need, if I want to get a useful answer out of Marty, don't, don't use the word struggling. 
it's a, it's a trigger point. He couldn't get past that word, but still used it in my story regardless. So well, yeah, for sure, because he did struggle. Yeah. I mean, and and we're, I know we're, we're not the Montreal Canadiens coach. That. We're not the, out there yeah. to make sure that he keeps a positive mindset and whatnot. It's just that's still it as it is, you know. If yeah, 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 and he's and that's fine. It's his prerogative to not want to use that word. That's fine, and, mm. and that's I have nothing against that. But the fact is that. You know, I found his focus on touches during that time when he was struggling was was a was was a bit misplaced. You know, mm -hmm. this is this is it had gotten to a point where it's more it's about more than touches, and and it's about it was just about his overall confidence and sense of self worth, and then there was like some really deep kind of psychological issues going on with Slavkovsky that need to be addressed. And but now I think you're seeing. And, and Marty actually said after the game that he's reached the next phase where now he's not only looking at Slavkovsky's touches, he's now looking at what he does with those touches because he feels satisfied with the number of touches he's getting. And now he's going to start to evaluate, okay, now when you get those touches, what do you do with them? Right. And uh, whereas last season and I think probably at the beginning part of this season, Marty said, on numerous occasions, but even told me at the draft, he's like, I, I don't care what he does with the touches as long as he gets them. So that was interesting to hear him say that he's, he's moved on to another phase. And that's thanks to Slavkovsky looking like someone who is, who is starting to get it. So uh, what, there, his line with Caulfield and Dvorak was the, the best line against the Vancouver Canucks on Sunday. Um, what do you make of the fact that these two games that are, that, seem to signal that he's staking it to the next level. Uh, he's played them alongside Christian Devorah. Yeah. I mean, I think in a previous episode, I mentioned how, actually, I think the last episode I mentioned how I didn't like that Devorak was with Caulfield and Suzuki. Yeah. Credit to Devorak. Honestly, like he's, he's, he played two really good games and has looked good. Mm -hmm. Um, about as good as we've seen him look in a Canadian's uniform, frankly. I mean, it's, it's really, and he does add an element of, of defensive awareness and presence on that line. Um, honestly, the worst guy on that line over the weekend was probably Caulfield. Mm -hmm. Frankly. Um, where's Nick? Also, where's Nick? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. Well, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, and I don't think that's it. You know, I think he's, he want it just, he's just, it's just not, It doesn't he doesn't look like a fit with those other two guys, but yeah, if Dvorak can become sort of Slavkovsky's centerman, and they develop some, I talked to Dvorak about Slav, and he was just like, it's it's just his confidence. He's mm -hmm. he's playing, he's making confident plays, and when he does that, he's a highly effective player. And so we got to we got to work to maintain that confidence. Um, just a quick sidebar on Cole: like, how many goals is he going to cost the Canadians? Well, he's up being to, offside. He's up to three now. He's up he's to up three. To, that, that's a lot. And so that means, which means he's been offside on probably, what, 30 entries this year? Yeah. I mean, honestly, if he's had three goals called back because of Cole Caulfield offsides, how many times does he actually go outside during a game yeah. and have it not be called? Like, it's got to be a huge number. So so he should probably stop doing that. He's almost <laughs> so as off, he's offside as often as, as Thomas Placanitz was back in the day. Oh, well, yeah. That's yeah, a lot. That's true. But yeah, um, no three game, three goals. I mean, that's three goals called back because you're offside for a single in player in 15 games. Yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> I, I honestly, um, I've never seen that. 
So we should let's talk a little bit about Gooley before we kind of move on because I felt sure. like we kind of just brushed over him. Mm. Um, interesting talking to Jonathan Kovacevic before the game on Sunday, uh, his new D partner, Gooley's new D partner. And, you know, Kovacevic and Gooley are both second-year NHL players, but Kovacevic is a wiser wiser NHL player. He's, he's 26. He's, he's, yep. he's been a pro for a lot longer. And so he said something interesting. He's like two things. Gooley's a tremendous skater. But his ability to control that speed, here's a Martin St. Louis, excuse me, ism coming through. His ability to control that speed um, is really impressive to Kovacevic. Mm-hmm. How he doesn't, he's not always going at full blast turbo speed, um, controls the pace of the game in that way. Uh, the other thing that he said really impressed him is the fact that they can come back to the bench and quickly discuss what went wrong or what went well on the previous shift. And he quickly, immediately, Moves on to the next shift. He did. He never lets a bad shift linger. He he he's like most young players. The bad things will stick with them. And and he used a very old timey expression. But with Caden, with Ghouls, it's like water off a duck's back, which is just a hilarious old timey expression. Yes, I didn't know it existed buddy, in English. But well, yeah. there you go. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, that's our buddy Guillaume Lefrancois said the same thing right after. He's like, I didn't know that existed in English. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but anyhow, it's a great, it's a great trait for Kane Gooley to have. It's not, it's not as if he has many bad shifts, which is really what's so remarkable about him, uh, without even a full NHL season's worth of experience under his belt. Uh, but when he does have them, and I thought he had a few against Vancouver, he wasn't quite as, uh, outstanding in the Vancouver game as he was against Boston, but, doesn't let it linger. It rarely turns into consecutive bad shifts as it does for some other defensemen on this team who play on the left side, maybe ahead of Gouli sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think, you know, with, when we talk about young players, we talk a lot about potential ceiling and also about floor. And mm-hmm. to me, Caden Gouli not only has a very high ceiling, but he's already established that his floor was super high. And mm-hmm. it's, it's very exciting to see how, well, this is, if this is the worst that he's going to be because he's so young and he's just getting used to the league and doesn't have a 82 games yet in the NHL. If that's how he's going to be, that's already good enough, but he's shown that he's got, You know, he's got, he's got the ceiling. means and, and the tools to be even so much better that yeah. it blows the mind to think how good this kid can become. Well, uh, I think his floor was always – he was always seen as a high floor pick yeah. right, when he got drafted. It was the ceiling that was the question. It was the offensive ability and everything. And I think that ceiling is, is starting to rise a little bit. Well, I think that you, you mentioned his speed. I think that's something that uh, offensively, he's a guy who can, you know – Uh, carry the puck once in a while and and come and help uh, the forwards, but his speed really is surprising. There's, I mean, you know the uh, the edge tool for that the NHL uh, you know, now uh, yeah. makes public. You know, with the uh, the electronic chips on on the puck and on the uh, on the on the jerseys. Um, so they they record all sort of stuff. And Caden Gooley registered a top speed that makes that puts him in ninety second percentile in the league. Right. So he's not, he's not considered, you know, p- people know that he's a good skater, but to have that number, like th- that, that proves how he 
distances himself from from the pack it's it's quite impressive mm-hmm. so there's that i think that the he's coming into his own in terms of his uh his nastiness also uh yeah the the, the hits the physical aspect of the game i thought that he parked it and decided that he would come back to it once he mastered other aspects of the game and now slowly but surely he gets more and more assertive when it comes to that uh and and that's another dimension of his game that when he's going to be uh he's going to play a heavy game as heavy as he can be when he's 25 26 i think he's going to be a monster out there uh and it, honestly to me it's only a matter of can he remain healthy because if he can his offensive game will develop i think he's he's got untapped potential it's it's going to be a matter of opportunities offensively i'm not sure with all the kids that are uh, in the pipeline right now whether you're your 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 hudson's your mayus your rhinebacker i'm not sure if he's going to get those uh those opportunities um but if he does he's going to rack up points but he it's it's fascinating and you don't see that too often especially in montreal a defenseman who even though he spends most of his game either in the defensive zone or in the neutral zone, mm-hmm. makes you feel as though he's controlling the game. Yeah, exactly. And Martin Saint-Louis, you know, I mean, he was asked to give a word to describe what, what contribution Gouli brings, and he just said stability. Mm. He's a 22-year-old defenseman who has an NHL head coach saying he brings stability. And so just on the nastiness thing, I think I've told this story before, but it bears repeating, you know, when I went out, West to kind of do a feature on Caden Gooley. Um, I watched him play. He was still playing for Prince Albert at the time. I watched him play in his hometown in Edmonton. And then I went down to watch him play in Red Deer. And Red Deer sort of had Prince Albert's number. It had a tendency to kind of push them around a bit, you know, physically sort of take it to them. And they were doing that on this night through two periods. And Prince Albert was down in the game, two or three nothing. I think it was three nothing. I don't remember. I was watching the game with his dad with Caden's dad. Mm -hmm. And uh, at one point early in the third period, Caden Gooley just kind of decided he'd had enough. And this poor guy on Red Deer crossed the blue line on his side of the ice, and Gooley just absolutely destroyed him. Like, just blew him up. Like, a penalty, like, charging, might have been elbowing. It was a lot there. It was a message-sending hit to his team. Like, stop letting these guys push us around. And I was just like, oh my, I, I was, I looked to his dad. I was like, holy shit, you know, holy shit. Like what the hell did he do to that poor kid? And his dad's just laughing. He's like, yeah, Caden has that in him sometimes. And yeah. it's like, and that's the thing. He does have that in him. And that's the point. And I've talked to him about that. And I've talked to him about that hit, which Caden, honestly, every time I bring it up, he brushes it off. Like it really wasn't that big of a deal, man. Like, why do you keep bringing it up? I'm like, yeah, I'm sorry. I bet you that kid, I don't even remember his name, but. Bet you that kid thought it was a big deal at the time because he felt that. But that is an element, of, as you mentioned, that is an element that Caden Gooley has that he's been reluctant to bring because he has so much respect for the speed of the NHL game, the elusiveness of players. He said it time and again. He's like, guys, guys just don't skate through the neutral zone and don't skate over the blue line with their heads down. It just doesn't happen. It happens in junior. It doesn't happen in the NHL, so I have to – I have to get my timing down. I have to adjust my timing to make hits like that. Mm-hmm. And it just sh- kind of shows the intelligence of Caden Gooley's game as well. Like he's not will- – like Arbor Jacki didn't walk into the NHL and say, oh, well, I need to adjust my timing to hit – no. He went out and he's like, I'm going to do exactly what I did in junior and I'm just going to destroy guys. I'm going to fight guys. It's, it's no- and That's his that identity. Effective. 
that's his identity and it was effective for him. Great. But he gets caught a lot mm-hmm. trying to hit guys and missing. And Kane Gooley did not want that to happen. And he was able to immediately recognize that from his first training camp where he obviously got cut and sent back. But his training camp last year, he knew that I can't be doing I need to be playing a positionally sound game. And once I get the rhythm and pace of this league, then, you know, the little devil on Caden Gooley's shoulder can come out and be like, okay, go. Now go wreak havoc. Go inflict pain on your opponents. And that's going to come. And it's going to come, I would imagine, it's starting to come now. I think we saw it a couple of times against Boston. We've seen it a few times this season. But by the end of the season, I think we're going to see it a lot more consistently as he understands his skating and his his mobility is an asset where he does not have to fear the mobility of opposing players. He can he can stay with them and he can time his hits and he can get those licks. Yeah, And, and I think he's starting to feel that confidence now. I think he's also a prime example of the difference between advanced metrics and the eye test because I'm sure that people who don't watch Canadians games will look at the stats and think that he's he's uh he's caving and you know that things are not going so well for him. You have to watch him to realize how how dominant he can be at times and how effective he is. Uh so that's and I think that in th- this This discrepancy will will shrink over time, but uh, since he arrived in the league, it's it, I see a difference between the two. Um, but he's actually he's actually not caving by by advanced stats. This is actually this is actually something he's he's third on the team in expected goals percentage. Okay, and he's only a, behind, yeah. he's behind Armia and Doc. He's at fifty eight point three six percent this okay. season. So. Good he's doing Armia. a lot better than he was yeah. last year. Yeah, good old Army. Yeah, he's doing a lot better than last year, and it's yeah his his numbers, his his metrics follow the eye test this season mm-hmm. quite quite significantly. Uh, just a quick note before we move on to another topic. Uh, Goli played 26 minutes in Vegas. You know that that game that Martin said we said yeah. was the best co- best game he coached, uh, and then he reached 21 minutes twice in the next six games. So there yeah. seems to be really... They were each of the last... They were the Detroit game and the Boston game. Was, that's right. There the seems to be a, a time management aspect to, to his usage. They don't... As, as, as stable as, as he is and as much stability as he provides to his, this team, uh, there seems to be still all the minutes going in Mike Matheson's direction And he's being monitored a lot closely. Do you see anything in there? Well, I think that there's there's a certain um, element of game management too. Like, I mean, if they like last night, for instance, Sunday night against Vancouver, um, I don't know how the minutes played out in the third period. I could check that, but it's when you're chasing the game, I can understand wanting Matheson on the ice over Gouli. Mm-hmm. That I get. Um, You know, Mike Matson in the third period last night played 10 minutes. So that's obviously going to eat into Gooley's ice time. You know, Gooley played less than five in the third. Yeah. So that's situational. I mean, the Canadians don't play with the lead very often. That's kind of what it that's that's sort of the issue. And so he, you know, the fact he was over 21 against Boston, was over 21 against Detroit, was because they were either tied or leading in those games. And so I think when if the Canadians play with the lead more often, he's going to get more ice time than Matheson for sure. It's late, late in those games, right? You know, and um, but if they need goals, 
I think Madison's going to get the lion's share, like we saw Sunday night. You know, I mean, he played half the period. So it's, but I would agree that generally, I think earlier in games, it would be a good idea to start using Gooley more than Matheson. Aside from power play duty, obviously, but at five on five, you know, I think. Listen, Matson had a great. Well, it, beca- it becomes Detroit, a ma- but it's, it's he's mis- he's still been mistake prone, and and Caden Gooley is not mistake prone. He's the he's the opposite of mistake prone. Mm-hmm. Whatever the opposite of prone is, it, that's Caden Gooley. He's he's mistake uh, he's mistake averse, or he's, he just doesn't make mistakes. This is very rare. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation, though, because early in the game, you might want to throw to send Matheson out there to maximize your chances of getting the lead so that you don't play, yeah. you know, catch up hockey the rest of the time. So, uh, right. Because, But putting him out there might lead to you playing catch up hockey. There's the, the way things have been going. So it's, it's yeah. yeah, it is. It is a chicken and egg thing for sure. But, um, you know, I think, I think Gouli has shown everything and, And actually, frankly, Justin Barron is showing a lot too. Even even though they got split, I think Barron's been great playing with Matheson. Um, Kovacevic's play has improved. I would imagine anyone who plays with Gouli sees their play improve. Yeah, seems like one of those guys. And so, kind of like Monahan up front. But um, but yeah, if I were if I were Martin Saint Louis, I would I would be trying to find ways to get Caden Gouli on the ice a little bit more often than he does. But 21 minutes is fine for him. Yeah. It's really Or 20 minutes. So, you know, I think he played 20-20 last night, despite playing only five minutes in the third. Was it something? Yeah, it was 20 minutes and 20 seconds against the Canucks. Only five of those came in the third period, which means through two periods he had played 15 minutes, which is pretty good. Yeah, so, uh, hardly any PK time also yesterday, so yeah, that, that factors exactly. in. Um, yeah, so all in all, an encouraging weekend for for Slavkovsky and Gouli. I think that Slavkovsky, we cross our fingers that it's going to – Keep in that going in that direction, and it's not not just a blip, but it's the beginning of something. But Gouli has been going on a upward trend for a long time, and it's just he's let's just enjoy watching him take off. So mm-hmm. that's that's what it looks yeah, like. Yeah, no, it's really it's really quite encouraging. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, moving on to uh, to Samuel Montembeau. So uh, there's been you wrote about that. You mentioned the fact that uh, that there were at least preliminary talks, but there's been There's been discussions between Montembeau's agent and the Montreal Canadiens. Uh, others have, have uh, relayed that uh, in the in the following days after. Uh, it was part of Elliot Friedman's Saturday headlines right. um, on Hockey Day in Canada that that I think he put it as the Canadiens are making a run at signing Montembeau. Um, I'm not sure about. The, I'm not, I don't know. How, I don't know if I would qualify that way. But if making a run means they're talking to to his camp, then 100% they're making a run. But making a run sounds like they're very eager to get this done and whatever. And I don't, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. No, me neither. There's a, there's, there's been, it's been a wait and see approach for quite a while now. And what I find interesting is if I, I think that there are two aspects to this contract negotiations that come into play. First is the body of work. Like, okay, so you've shown us that, You are getting better year after year. Show us that it can continue this mm-hmm. year, but under a three goalie situation with you know with starts that are coming not all that frequently. It's harder to prove yourself in that the, in that in those conditions. 
And the second aspect is uh, regarding his what he will want in terms of his annual yes. salary. And if his demands are above what the Canadians think that they can allow to this guy and how they can, uh, how much money they can risk on him, especially w when you factor in the length of the contract, because it's one thing to say, oh, you know what, we're going to give you, I don't know, four million for three years, but four million for five is a different story. So it's really factoring in both the, the, the salary and, and the duration of the contract. Uh, the Canadians have to be comfortable with that. And the reason, I think, why there's been a wait-and-see approach so far, and it's, it's only getting started now, it's, it's trying to make sense of those two aspects. And if they're talking, mm -hmm. I think, is that there's an openness from the Montembeau's camp to be uh, not to... Uh, Not, not, not too, uh, not too hungry in their demands, and make it so that a deal can be made with the Canadians because Montembeau has always been very clear to the fact that he wants to stay in Montreal. Yeah, hundred percent. And and it's you know right now Sam Montembeau has played 85. He started 75 games for the Canadians, um, which you know is basically a, a season and a half as a starters. Sample, you know, but the sample is not that great. I mean, his and his numbers, you know, eight ninety seven save percentage, three five two goals against over that span. Um, you know, I think the Canadians need more runway mm -hmm. with Sam Montembeau, and and you're right to point out the 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 salary demands. You know, I think I think if you look at Jake Allen's contract. And, you know, what he signed his extension was, what, two years at 3.5 a year, somewhere in that vicinity. And there were certain things that the Canadians were rewarding Jake Allen for, you know, a, a longer body of work and, and just the veteran aspect of him in the dressing room on a young team, him accepting any role that can come him counseling young players through tough times. Uh, there was a lot more than just goaltending that went into wanting to have Jake Allen around. Mm -hmm. uh, not to say that Sam Montembeau doesn't provide some of those things, but he's not, you know, he has not been part of a Stanley cup winning team. Even if Jake Allen was the backup, he is, does not have the long body of work that Jake Allen has it. And so, but potentially has a higher ceiling than him. Who knows? I mean, it's, it's, but he's also kind of, you know, relatively late in his career. And, and while yes, there is a potential for him to become one of those goalies, one of those middle of the pack goalies who, who provide adequate goaltending, let's say, or, or slightly above average goaltending or even above average goaltending, but not in the elite tier Coming up with a number is just complicated. It's complicated because of that 75-game sample they're working with, which is only going to grow. It's complicated because Sam Montembeau is not playing as often as he would like, considering his contract situation. You know, when I talked to him about it in St. Louis, in St. Louis, you know, he mentioned how, well, this is the first time I've ever had a contract for more than one year. So I'm used to that. I'm used to having, I'm used to wondering about my contract situation. And I was like, yeah, but you've never been a UFA before. But you've never had UFA status waiting for you at the end of the contract. You know, you were always tied to whoever, you know, you, you didn't have any leverage. 
He's like, yeah, that's true. And once you get, once you go UFA, you never know what's going to happen. So it's, it's, he wants to stay with Montreal, but I do think the UFA part of it, and this isn't based on anything Sam said, let's just to be clear. But when you, when you are about to become a UFA, you can naturally start to wonder, okay, what if there's like some sort of a bidding war for my services? I mean, talk to Jonas Corpusalo about going UFA, you know, and what the benefits of that can be. Yeah. It's, it's, it's got to be tempting and tantalizing if the if the Canadians are reluctant to meet whatever country. And I don't know what Montembeau's camp is looking for money wise, but I would guess that if it's if they're looking for something that starts with a four, that's going to be a tough sell with the Canadians. It's going to be difficult to get that to the finish line. And so, if he absolutely wants that, and again, I'm saying if. I don't know, but if he wants something that starts with a four, which I think as a UFA is a nice thing to aspire to, whether it's realistic or not, it's hard to say, but I can see Sam Montabo as his agent being like, well, listen, it's not inconceivable if you have a good season this year that we go out on the free agent market and we get you that contract that starts with a four in terms mm-hmm. of the AAV. Whether he gets it or not is a whole other matter. It's whether he believes he can get it that will complicate this this conversation with the Canadians. And if he's hell bent on getting it, like if, if he's, if he's willing to take a lesser AAV and exchange it for term, um, maybe the Canadians go for that. Maybe they give him like a three or four year deal at a lower number. Um, but I don't think they're going to go mega long term here. And I think the AAV is, is going to have to stay in a very reasonable place. For, for this contract, for these contract talks to get to the finish line, because the, the Canadians are tiptoeing. I think it's pretty clear that they have certain, I don't want to say reservations because reservations has a negative connotation. They just have certain questions yeah. that haven't been answered yet. Well, that's it. And it's not an environment right now where they can answer, have their, these questions answered very quickly. And you mentioned Carpisalo. He's, I think he's an interesting comparable. For uh, yeah. for Montembeau, he signed for five million uh, for five years at four million a year. Uh, but I think, and he, I mean, he had been going, uh, you know, up and up and down with Columbus for quite a while, having like split duties and whatnot. But he had that end of season with LA, where he was really good. The numbers were really good, and it sort mm-hmm. of enabled him to go out on the market and get get that sort of contract same with um Ville Husso Ville Husso is you know he's he's only a, a year or two older than Montembeau uh mm-hmm. had a short um yeah short life uh in in the NHL he played I mean p- parts of two season with St. Louis second season in St. Louis uh he his save percentage was 919 And so that when you're just about to become a UFA and you showcase a 919 save percentage in 40 games, well, you people will pay attention to what you can do. It's the mm-hmm. St. Louis Blues, and they've always done a marvelous job at inflating their goalies' numbers ever since, gosh, for ever since Ken Hitchcock, uh, mm-hmm. but for a long time, he fell back. If you know, he sort of come down to earth with Detroit, but he's that. That short stint, those two years in St. Louis, enabled him to get a three-year contract at $4.75 million. So that's way yeah. above what Montembeau can hope for Montreal. 
But I think that a three-year deal is interesting, and a three-year deal below four is is something that both camps should consider, in my view. Yeah, because the thing I is, I think so too. Because it, I mean, Montembeau, he's still a somewhat average goalie, but he's he's trending upwards from one year to the next. His his save percentage is going slowly up. His his amount of quality starts also is going up. His uh, goals against average of what it's worth is going down, and it's a small sample yet so far this season because he played only he took parts in seven games. But he seems to be doing better on the PK, which has been an issue with him uh, in the past. And there were no games where you know even the two where he gave up five goals. There were no games where you looked at him and said yeah, he really doesn't have it tonight. The way like Jake Allen was against Tampa the other night, so he's there's there's a fairly fairly um, consistent aspect to his game so far this season that that I find uh, pretty enticing. Yeah, I agree. I just um, I I just don't know. I can't handicap how long this is going to take, but I don't think it's I don't think it's imminent. It might be. I might be wrong. You know, so mm-hmm. I might eat these words, but. I think there's going to need to be, I would say, some pretty significant concessions from Montembeau's camp in order to get a contract quickly. Because you just mentioned the two guys, the two goalies you just mentioned, who benefited from the UFA system. Like the, the thing about the NHL's system is, it is not tailored to goalies at all. The waiver system is not tailored to goalies, and the UFA system is not tailored to goalies. One, and both of them benefit goalies a great deal. Mm-hmm. I'm sure Caden Primo would argue that the waiver system is not benefiting him right now. But Sam Montembeau would argue that it did. It helped him. And now the UFA system is helping him as well because you could argue that he is maybe entering his prime as a goaltender at age 27, well, soon to be 27, and and that he's he's about he can cash in on, on that potential You know, most forwards and defensemen can't say that we have there's untapped potential in me at age 27. Yeah. Whereas Sam Montembeau can can make that argument, and it, whether that's true or not is another matter entirely. But you you can you can, I think, somewhat reasonably ascertain based on what he's done in his career and how few games he's played that yes, in fact, he has there's a lot to come and there's a lot to like, you know, I mean, he's a third round draft pick. It's not like he came out of nowhere. Like he's, he's, you know, pretty high draft pick for a goalie. Um, but we'll see where it goes, you know, but I, I just think that there's, there's a lot that the Canadians need to figure out about him, how much money they want to pay him, how much term they want to give him, and whether what we're seeing from him is real. And there's obviously the, the evidence is mounting, He's having a good season so far. His World Championships performance, his performance last season. There's, but it's, it's not. You know, I mean, when you mentioned Corpusalo earlier, like Corpusalo had what eight years in Columbia. He played 210 games with the Columbus Blue Jackets. Like it's and it's they, the numbers it's weren't outstanding. Work, yeah, but it's it's a body of work, you know. And yeah. then Sam just doesn't have that. So. It's gonna be it's gonna be fascinating to see where this number lands. If if they sign him to a contract in the next little while, it'll be fascinating to see the number because it's. I am tempted to believe that if he signs with the Canadians, Sam will have to be willing to leave potential UFA dollars on the table, um, 
and just not take that risk. Because because as a goalie, you never know. Like Corpus Allo, you can look at Corpus Allo and be like, oh, that, that looks nice. That'd be nice if I got a contract like that. But you could also just be sitting around without a contract. And it kind of depends year to year how many jobs are available, right? So it's like the goal, the UFA calculation for a goaltender is vastly different than it is for a player because any player who's decent, you know that there's some there's a team out there somewhere that has a hole that you can fill. You can reasonably expect, even if it's a bad team or whatever, you can reasonably, if you're a legitimate top four defenseman in the NHL, someone out there is going to need a top four defenseman. Whereas if you're a goalie who's like a tandem goalie or borderline starting goalie, how, how many of those jobs are there? There's, there's yeah. basically one per – even if you go two per team, even if you have 64 goalies in the NHL at any given time, maybe well, well, maybe the, five or six of those jobs are available at any one time. You know, it's like it's, It could be that low. But, yeah, so the risk for a guy like Montembeau to go on the uh, – on the market is that, you know, if he, if he gets greedy, other teams would say, well, for that caliber of goalie, I'll find another who will cost me a million five less than you, you know? Yeah. But yeah, but the, the, so you it, bank, not every team will say that. Like it's no, 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 of course. But I mean, the options, there's, there's always enough a options. Dor- there's always a Pierre Dorian out there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's true, but I mean, he's not going to be the only goalie available in the UFA market. I mean, there's going to be next uh, next summer. They're scheduled to be uh, Peter Morazek, who's really having a solid bounce back season with with Chicago. He's really mm-hmm. playing well right now. Uh, Elias Samsonov. I mean, he's struggling in Toronto, but he's got. I, I think that he's got a past history that at, at a he could be a a cheap addition and try to make him like a your own comeback story, whoever wants to give it a shot on this guy. But I, I still think that he can be a talented tandem goalie in the NHL. Capo mm-hmm. uh, Kakonen, while well, things are not going too well for him, but Eric Comrie is a guy who can be a second goalie and will for sure be cheaper than Montembeau. So th- there are, uh, there's always other guys. So you have to be able to prove the year before, the season before you become UFA, that you're better than those other options and that you're going to be the first call that they're going to make. And if it doesn't work, then they're going to call other people. But you have to be th- at the top of the list. So that's going to be right. Samuel Montembeau's challenge. And as long as it's not the case, the Canadians can sit back and feel as though they've got the upper hand in those negotiations. Well, when you're, only, when you're playing less than 50% of the games, it's hard. it doesn't help. Every no. time Caden Primo gets a start, I mean, listen, I don't think Sam Montabo could blame the Canadians for playing Jake Allen and having basically a 50-50 split between him and, and Jake. But those two starts by Primo, you know, if you're Sam Montabo, you're like, ah, I kind of want that start. You know, it's like, it's, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm a UFA. It's a pretty yeah. important year in my career, but it's a pretty important year in Keaton Primo's career. It's, that's just, it's an added wrinkle to the whole three goalie situation um, that, that complicates things for, for all three guys, basically. Yeah. And it's, it's all for different reasons for all three guys. But in Sam's case, it's definitely UFA year. And, and he didn't, you know, he said it's, he's thinking about it a little bit. Like it's in the back of his mind. It's not overwhelming him. It's not something that he stays up at night thinking about. But it's only natural that you're entering your first UFA year. It's, it's, it's a year that you could really, Set get set with 
you know, generational money, really set your family up for, for a long time. It's normal that you would think about it a little bit. And it's normal that you'd want to be in a situation that allows you to take full advantage of it. And the, the current situation isn't that for Sam Multiple. That's, that's mm -hmm. clear. All right, let's move to the mailbag. We've got tons of questions to tackle. We'll try to uh, keep our answer, answers short. That's our specialty. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah we're <laughs> that's really what we're known for. <laughs> we're, we're we're almost an hour into this podcast. We're just getting we're just getting to the mailbag now. But yeah, so we'll try and keep it quick. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I think you had one from uh, Marie Pierre Tremblay. Let's start with that one. Yeah, sure. So this is thanks for the question, Marie Pierre. Merci. Um, So let's get right into it. I was intrigued to hear other analysts say that the Habs use man-to-man -man coverage as their defensive strategy and that they might be the only NHL team to do so, as it is apparently very difficult to pull off. First off, is this true? It is not. And if it is, again, not. But how much of it is really man-to-man -man coverage and how much of it has to do with trying to learn positionless hockey? Marte St. Louis seems to encourage defenders to join the offense a lot, and for this, forwards have to be able to cover their teammates. Also, do you think having Lane Hudson in the pipeline, who, to quote Arpin, came out of the womb preaching positionless hockey? I don't remember saying that, but I'm going to take your word yeah. for it. It's a pretty yeah. good line, though. Yeah, oh, I did? did? Nice. I like that line. It's pretty good. Um, might factor in this willingness of the Canadians to embrace positionless hockey. He might be the Canadians' biggest wild card, and to bring him in an environment where he'll be able to thrive might be the best way to help him reach his ceiling. What say you to that, Marc-Antoine Godet? Well, those are two different things. Man-to-man -man coverage... And positionless hockey are two different concepts. Man-to-man uh, -man coverage is a defensive concept you, uh, as opposed to zone zone coverage. So it's when the other team's attacking, how do you structure and defend in your own end? Whereas positionless hockey is an idea of a is is a is a way to uh, to attack and install your attack so that the way you move the puck and the way you, you move your personnel around, there are switches in the positions that you occupy and the areas that you cover as a five-man unit so that all of a sudden a defenseman can become a forward. But it doesn't mean, hey, let's improvise and let's, let's create chaos and basically do whatever we want there. It's still very uh, organized. It just needs a... Uh, a, a read from all the players involved and an, an intuition and the knowledge of your teammates. I think that, uh, that maybe not every, um, every player, when it comes to uh, reading the play, every, not every player has it in the same, uh, same amount. And Lane Hudson's known for that, but this is primarily the positionless hockey thing is more when you attack. So yeah. you have to look at, at defenses to do, do teams will play man to man or zone, uh, more and more teams will play zone because, uh, because it's, it's less, the, the game has gotten so fast uh, that you have to, if you are doing man-to-man, um, -man, you have to do many switches uh, and say, well, transfer responsibilities. When you do zone, you can just focus on certain areas. But uh, that even though the game has gotten faster, there are still quite a bit of teams that play man-to-man. Yeah, and the Canadians do play kind of a hybrid version of man-to-man -man and zone. Um, you'll often see the Canadians hand players off to each other. Um, so it, it depends. You know, sometimes the defenseman will follow a man, his man, all the way up to the blue line. Uh, sometimes you'll hand that guy off to a forward. It really is situational. It depends on reads. requires a lot of communication. But it's not a strict man-to-man -man system uh, in Montreal. No. Positionless hockey 
is something that uh, I go back to that term uh, very quickly is something that it's not entirely new. It's just that it, it, it's percolates at the NHL level more and more, but it's something that's been uh, that USA hockey has been big on for, for, uh, for a few years now and more and more guys that arrive in the league and young defensemen have grown practicing that style. So it may not be named that way because it's, it might be a bit misleading to do that. But when you hear Martin saying, we talk about being balanced on the ice, it's just whoever's in a certain position of the ice, make sure that the other four guys distribute the weight and, and cover different areas so that the options remain the same and the, that nobody, uh, everybody's not loaded on one side and there's, 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 there's a gap on another. So there's, mm-hmm. there's got to be that balance, but, Whether you're a forward or a defenseman, uh, it's it's not as important. You're not holding your ground and holding your position the same way as before. So that's basically that's what it is. Okay. Um, listen, uh, Philippe Marceau Laranger wanted to uh, ask us to explain the conditions on the Sean Monahan trade with uh, with Calgary. He said Toffoli, but I'm pretty sure he meant Monahan because. Uh, Toffoli's been the Toffoli trade has been already uh, settled. Obviously, the Canadians drafted Philip Mishar, but all the the crazy conditions uh, were were attached to the Sean Monahan, Monahan trade. You once wrote about this, and it's it's pretty it's pretty it's crazy. It's pretty complicated. Yeah. So enlighten yeah. us, please. <laughs> yeah. So this isn't actually this is this is the second time we had another. Questioner, apologies. I can't find the email, but we had someone else ask last week about this. Yeah. And so at the time of the trade, I did a lot of, I made a lot of phone calls. I did a lot of digging. I tried to understand this convoluted list of conditions that came attached with this trade. So here's what I wrote at the time. This story is dated August 19th, 2022. So basically right after the trade. So Let me know if this is actually better than whatever was written. Well, it is better than whatever was written in the trade, but let me let me know, Marc-Antoine, if this makes this any more clear. Okay. So um, the conditions are frankly mind-numbing, but here's a rundown. If Calgary's first-round pick in 2024, meaning the next draft, falls between number 20 and number 32, the Canadians have the option of taking that pick and the trade is closed. Um, if it doesn't, Or if the Canadians choose not to take it, the pick moves to 2025. What complicates matters is the Panthers traded their 2025 first-round pick to the Flames in the Matthew Kachuk deal with top 10 protection. If that pick moves to Calgary in 2025 and Calgary's own pick is also outside of the top 10, then the Canadians get the better of those two picks. If Calgary's 2025 pick is in the top 10 and they receive the Panthers' 2025 first-round pick, Then the Canadians get the Panthers pick. In the extremely unlikely scenario that the trade is not resolved by the 2025 draft because Calgary's pick is first overall, which it is first overall protected, and Florida's pick fell in the top 10, there are scenarios where the Canadians would either get Calgary's third or fourth round pick in 2025 in addition to either Calgary's or Florida's unprotected first round pick in 2026. Okay, I'm dizzy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. So, first of all, you say the first year if the the Calgary finishes between 20 and 32. Basically, if they're 
It basically, they're a it means team. They're, they're an elite team. They're a top-tier team in the league, which seems unlikely. But then, so if so, if they if they were to finish them there, the Canadians would take that pick. If they don't, they could. They could they take that. Could pick. take it. Yes, it's not would. It's could. Could take. They it. would have the option of taking that pick if it is between. In this draft, this mm-hmm. next draft coming up, if Calgary's first round pick falls between twenty and thirty-two, the Canadians have the option of taking it, and that which, would close. Which the trade. means that if the Calgary Flames finish lower in the standings and it's better than the number twenty pick, they don't have that. They do not have the option to take not, that pick. So yeah, okay. And early, from what we see, or very early on in the season. It might be a it bit. It is not. It is not likely, not likely. It is not likely the Canadians will have the option. And even if they did have the option to take the pick, it is not likely they would take that option. Mm-hmm. The way Calgary is trending, it's they, they probably wouldn't take it even if they had that option. So okay. they would have a pretty good shot at getting a better pick in twenty twenty five. Right. That's it. But then yeah. that pick is uh, that pick. There's a pick that's protected. That's top ten protected. So then it becomes the. The best pick outside the top 10 for Calgary and the pick from Florida. Is that it? Yes. Yeah, so in 2025, if Florida's pick is not in the top 10, then they transfer that pick to Calgary. Um, if Calgary's pick is also outside of the top 10, then the Canadians get the better of those two picks. So let's say Calgary is picking 12th mm-hmm. and the Panthers are picking 18th. The Canadians would get Calgary's pick at 12th. If right. the Panthers are picking 13th and Calgary's picking 21st, the Canadians will get the Panthers pick at 13th. So the way that things are going with uh, the team, the Calgary Flames, you know, you what we're hearing is that there's uh, all those players that are in, in need to rego- renegotiate their contract. All the talks have stalled. And basically, Craig Conroy and the Flames are reassessing the direction of the team, what they're going to do with this team. So if they go in a rebuild route, it suggests it might they might not strip everything down right away, but it suggests that they might not be as strong a team next year as they are this year. They they could lead into certain years where they might struggle a bit more. So I'm not sure if it would translate into a top ten pick, but in all well, like there's one, there's one added layer that needs to be added here is that yeah. Calgary's pick is there's a layer of top 10 protection. So if the Calgary 2025 pick is in the top 10, but they receive the Panthers 2025 pick, which is outside the top 10 in that case, the Canadians would get the Panthers pick. And there's, then it gets to the point where if Calgary's pick is first overall in the 2025 draft and Florida is in the top 10, then it gets into a whole other complicated yeah, scenario yeah. that is just really not worth even thinking about. No. Basically, the Canadians are going to have, in all likelihood, the Canadians will wind up with a 2025 pick probably somewhere in the teens. Yeah. That's that's what we're probably looking at here. There's just a whole series good. of things. Yeah, which is fine. But it's really, I mean, yes, there's all these convoluted parts of the trade. Like if you go to the actual trade document or guess or the announcement it'll make your head spin but if you just think of the monahan trade will be completed in all likelihood uh by the 2025 draft where the canadians will either get the flames pick or the panthers pick and it'll probably be somewhere somewhere between 11 
and probably 20, the, the, you know, it, it's, it's, they're getting the better of the two picks. So they're probably getting a pick somewhere yeah, in the team. But if, if at the 2025 draft, the flames uh, have a protected top 10 pick and they pick top 10 and the, and the, the, the Panthers are, you know, are remain 13. a very strong team. Yeah, there, let's there's a good chance that the, the Panthers could be in the 20s. Their yeah, could be absolutely. In the 20s. And in that in that case, the Canadians would get in the in that case, the Canadians would get the Panthers pick. Yeah, that's less yeah. sexy, but well, okay. Well, this is a long. You know what, guys? We have a we have more than a year to digest that still. Yeah, but there, <laughs> that's that's the that's the the. <laughs> It might not sound that way, but that's the brief answer to the question. Unfortunately, yeah. it took, that took forever. Yeah. Um, I All we right. had another one from uh, from Jean Philippe. Who this is an interesting one. Okay. It's the label of his email is Schrodinger's players. Um, so he said the title of this email refers to two players, Christian Dvorak and David Savard, who are apparently good and bad at the same time, like the cat that's both inside and not inside the box. Savard looks like a genuinely good guy, seems to have a good influence on his teammates and to exert some kind of leadership on the team. But by nearly every conceivable defensive metric, he is not a very efficient or even good player at times on the ice. As for Dvorak, cut and paste from the metric part down, I have no sense of that guy otherwise. And yet, those two guys are frequently mentioned not only as potential trade targets, but their absence is bemoaned by nearly every analyst in the community. Can you guys explain this discrepancy or at least address it? What do the stats miss? Okay, well, when it comes to Savard, I think that the fact that he's an older defenseman in a very young decor makes his absence more obvious. I think that he's a guy who's better equipped to face uh, top lines on the other side than Mike Matheson, for example. He's a guy who's useful on PK. He can play a lot of minutes. Uh, he can play physical. He's got a good stick. And honestly, at their respective point in their career, if, if in a defensive situation, I would rather have uh, David Savah out there than, let's say, Arbor Jackai. So mm -hmm. some people have an issue with his salary, and it looked as though it was pricey back when the Canadians signed him because he looked as though he's go he was going in the direction of being like a sixth defenseman. But honestly, I think... Because let, let's remember that he signed uh, uh, with Montreal for $3.5 million a year for four years. Um, but honestly, the, as, a UFA. I, as a UFA, exactly. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, you'll you'll be paid more than, than you're worth on the UFA market. That's the nature of the, the beast. But since then, I would say that he's, he's really earning his salary. He's not a great defenseman, but he's I, I think that he's greatly effective, statistically speaking, by the fact that he's constantly starting his shifts in his own end. He's, he's, his missions are strictly defensive. So uh, he's just there to bend but not break. Uh, and he's, also, he's also a great teammate. And that's, that's, not, that's what you don't get in the numbers is bend but not break, absolutely. And, and listen, is he an ideal top four defenseman on a contending team? No. Did the Tampa Bay Lightning, one of the most analytically inclined organizations in the NHL, pay a first-round pick to add him to their Stanley Cup contending team? Yes, they did. There's a reason for that because it's not just analytics. He is uh, – he blocks shots. He does all the things that you need to do in He's the right playoffs handed. to win. He's right-handed. He can face difficult opposition 
not ideally, but he can do it. Uh, he can definitely kill penalties, and he just—he's just a guy that that teams need. You know, Ben Sherratt at the time the Canadians had him was a similar type of guy. You know, it was just a guy that teams. And there's a reason why the Florida Panthers gave up a first round pick to get Ben Sherratt. There's there's a reason why these guys are valued. Um, that go beyond the numbers, that go beyond the metrics, and it's just an intangible part of hockey that's that's difficult to quantify, mm-hmm. but it's there and it's obvious, and it's and 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 it's, people should no longer be surprised. Like the Canadians, at some point, are going to put David Savard on the trade market, and teams are going to want to trade for David Savard. I can guarantee it. Like it's for just sure. like it's just because playoff teams that intend to go several rounds deep in the playoffs need players like David Savard. Christian Dvorak's a different kind of thing, a different animal. I don't think his metrics are quite as bad as, as, as Savard's are, but he is another, but he's similar in the sense that if you're, if you're a contending team who's not entirely satisfied with your depth down the middle as a third, at your third line center position, would you like a guy who, who can win draws from the left side at a pretty decent clip, can kill penalties, can play on the power play in a pinch, and and will not hurt you, definitely will not hurt you defensively, and is able to pitch in offensively from time to time. Like if you were to paint the picture of of an ideal third-line center on a playoff team, does that not fit the bill? I think it does. Yeah, it does, except that he there's nothing in all the things that he can do that he does very well. He doesn't strike to me as as a guy. You're talking who, about a third line center. Yeah, but I mean, you don't you don't need guys that do things exceptionally well to play on your third line. I mean, yeah, top six. I would I would I would argue for sure. You need. I mean, he hasn't. You, well, yeah, he's he's been taken. He hasn't played a whole ton of power play since he, uh, he joined Montreal. He played a bit, but as years went by, he played less and less. I still think that. He could be probably one of their best options at bumper, but he's a left-handed shot, so it's it doesn't it's a no-go on the first unit. Um, but I mean, in terms, he's taking he's a guy also who starts a lot of uh, of his uh, shifts. So he takes a lot of uh, these own draws um, alongside Jake uh, Jake Evans, so it's useful to spare either Nick Suzuki or Sean Monahan of that. But I think that he would be. Going back to uh, going back to the question where he said, "Well, why is it that uh, you know uh, their absence is bemoaned by every analyst?" I think that in this particular case, we we made such a big deal of of the Vorak being gone or not being there was not. It was mainly because of Caden uh, Kirby Doc being injured. Had Kirby Doc being healthy, uh, you know, you could have lived without Dvorak very easily with Suzuki, Doc, and Monaghan down the middle. Without Doc, it forces you to have uh, Newhook as a centerman uh, and Newhook potentially as your third-line centerman or instead of using it maybe as a top-six winger. Uh, so Dvorak being back, it allowed Martin Saint-Louis to have more options and, and maybe have more flexibility around his lineup. But I don't think that what he provides makes him uh you know like a key component of the Canadians lineup and honestly where I, I was talking about uh salaries earlier well 3.5 I think that definitely David Sava is is have is is a is a good deal at 3.5 but 
Christian Dvorak signed with Arizona a six-year deal that was uh, $4.45 million. And the progression curve that they saw in Arizona did not continue with Montreal. Maybe it's a matter of opportunities. Maybe, maybe not. But I don't see him at $4.45 million as a guy who, who's worth his money. Because you could replace him by a guy that makes half of his salary and he might be just as effective. So... Nah, I don't. I disagree. I don't think you could replace him with a guy at half his salary. We're seeing it right now. I mean, we just mentioned how he just played the best games we've seen him play in a yeah. Canadian's uniform. Yeah, yeah, like but that's that's he's, his that's ceiling too- is higher than. Yeah, his ceiling is higher, and it's you know the Canadians don't have a cap issue. Like it's it's no. the problem will be that when they're trying to trade him, the teams are going to say that. But I don't think you know third line centers who could do everything that he does at two million dollars a year don't grow on trees. You're not finding all the things. What did JT Comfort just get out of Detroit? I know that his offensive numbers last year were ridiculously much better than Christian Dvorak's, but it's, you know, it's, you look at Dvorak and see that there's offensive, there's offensive ability there, even if the numbers don't necessarily reflect it. Is he worth 4.45? Definitely not. Um, but he is, he is, yeah, but is he, is, is, is he, is he worth working into your salary structure to give you the appropriate depth down the middle that is necessary to advance in the playoffs and do the things that he does that allows you, I mean, you know, he was out there defending five on threes over the weekend. He's, He's he's a guy who does a lot of things, you know. Mm-hmm. His his faceoff ability is there's situational his situational hockey benefits, um, are are I think would be greatly valued. Yeah, maybe the Canadians would have to eat like a little bit of his money to get him traded, but I don't think they'd have to eat a significant amount, you know. And it's it's honestly like it's there's only one year. It'd be a good fit in Boston. Of course he would. Be a good fit in a lot of places. A good fit in Colorado. Hmm. But I, I bet that Marc Bergevin, when he made that infamous trade with Arizona and gave up yeah. a first-round pick and thought that he would replace Philippe Dano with this pick. guy, uh, oh, he probably pick. was hoping that that uh, Dvorak had at least a year like JT Comfer in him offensively. And so far it hasn't Well, been. and honestly, yeah, and it's... I mean, in his two years prior to joining, prior to getting traded, he had 18 goals in 70 games and 17 goals in 56 games yeah. with Arizona. So it was not unreasonable. It wasn't outrageous to think that, okay, maybe this guy has, has that in him. So it was a first and a second. <laughs> it wasn't just a first. That's, that's, Second round pick in 2024, actually. That's the, in this coming draft. It's going to complete this trade. My eyes are bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's move okay, on. One last one. Last one. This is the last one. Let's go. Okay. Uh, let's. Uh, do you want to do the Huberdo thing or the power play thing? Uh, the Huberdo thing. The power play thing we can actually address really quickly. It's, it's, it, it's, it's here. Let's, let's read the email. It'll be a very fast answer because. Um, this was from Tom Law. Mm. Do you have any insights regarding the recent success of the power play? They seem to be doing the same thing strategically as the beginning of the year when they were awful. Just puck luck. Um, 
my take on it is this is this is born out of familiarity. One thing we didn't see from the power play last year is that every time it seemed to get going, someone would get injured, the power play personnel would change, and they weren't able to create any continuity, any momentum as a unit. Um, this unit, since Doc's injury, has remained the same. There's been nothing changing on, on either unit. Nothing's changed. Josh Anderson replaced Kirby Doc, has stayed there. And and honestly, to my shock, I'm starting to see the benefits of Josh Anderson on the power play. Like, like, very, like he's, starting to, he's starting to grow on me somewhat. Even though he's not scoring goals, but he's actually a really good puck retriever on the power play. And like when, when plays get broken, he tends to be able to extend possession in the offensive zone. So he's not really a scoring threat, but I think he's maybe a facilitator in that way. But yeah. but my my short answer to that question is this is this is we're seeing the benefit of continuity and chemistry and 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 also creativity from the coaching staff. Uh, not just Alex Burroughs, but Martin Saint Louis who, who who has his hands in that power play dough as much if not more than Burroughs does. Um, of moving guys around. Uh, you know, Suzuki will go to the left side sometimes. Caulfield will switch sides. There's, there's, there's not as much of a predictable look that they provide. Mm-hmm. So those are my quick answers to that. Well, I would add a few, uh, few pointers. I think that Sean Monahan winning 61% of his face-offs on the power play helps a great deal. Yeah, but, that was, but that was true at the beginning of the season, though. It was, it was, but I think, it, yeah, that's true. Uh, there's a, I've I've noticed. I feel as though their their drop is more effective now, and Suzuki's uh, zone entries are more effective. They don't get stopped uh, at the blue line; they get set better than they they were before. Uh, Suzuki, everybody's complaining of the fact that he should shoot he should shoot more on the power play. Well, nobody shoots more than him, so. I think that they should continue in that sense because uh, whenever the fact that there was so much focus put on Caulfield early on in the year uh, made him, I remember we discussed that in the previous episode, that made the power play easier to defend because and, and to cheat on Caulfield's side because there was constantly the pass to try just to feed Caulfield so that Caulfield would be the one shooting. Now Suzuki's shooting a lot more. Uh, he's actually shooting at a twice the clip of last year on the power play. And it has translated into goals. So if at least the Canadians can have, you know, those, those two threats on each side, uh, you know, in each circle, I think that's a good thing. Um, and let's not forget also that the, the second unit has been as chipped in every once in a while. You know, they play roughly a quarter of the uh, of the minutes but they've uh, i mean they've played yeah they play play maybe 30 40 seconds on each power play but you look mm-hmm. at the uh, at the goals for i mean guys the top on the the first unit that's been there for roughly 10 11 goals uh well newhook's been there for five goals pearson for four so that's 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 interesting they've been that second unit's been been helpful too so you put that in You know, new hook, common, new hook on zone, new hook and zone entries is real. It's a real dynamic presence on that second unit. Yeah, but there are nights where he reminds me a little bit of Scott Gomez in the sense that he will cross the blue line, 
But once he gets there and he puts on the brakes, what does he do? Is there an option there? Mm-hmm. It might be the it might be his teammates' responsibility, but I find that once he's got into the zone, it, do they establish possession or it's quickly out? Because he he carries the puck in very very nicely, but mm-hmm. after that, it's what's the next play after that? Uh, I, I think that there's still adjustments to be made there, but it's uh it's encouraging. And I mean, you mentioned Saint Louis. You know, having uh, both hands in the dough, uh, that's true. And uh, I think that uh, uh, as much as people wanted to see Alex Boros being fired when things were not going well, uh, well, you have to consider that those same people have to acknowledge that he's part of he's a he's partly to to thank for the the, the power play going better now. But what, when things were not going well, well, there was. There was some Saint Louis issues there too, and I'm sure that fans were not ready to ask for Martin Saint Louis firing either. Right. So exactly. I think there's uh yeah, familiarity to come back to your point is uh has a good uh has a lot to do with it, and that's always been Martin Saint Louis' argument. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 got some I think we're seeing that has some merit, whereas last year we didn't really buy it. Okay, last one. Yeah, that's from Andrew from Calgary. And I, that's yes. that's what makes it interesting is because the question comes from Calgary. So yes. with, uh, with the development backlog of forwards in Montreal and the continuing revolving doors of wingers playing with Suzuki and Caulfield, I was wondering what your thoughts are on the struggling Jonathan Huberdeau in Calgary. I know he comes with a, con- a carry price-like contract, but it seems a pass-first winger with point-producing potential who was rumored to want to be in Montreal may be a positive. Moreover, the Canadians still have contracts to get rid of uh, that could offset the cost. Would a trade of, say, Josh Anderson and Yoel Armia or Gallagher and Armia for Huberdo make sense for the Canadians? Would it make sense for the Flames, who would seem justified just to shed the distraction and contract assumed by previous management? Um, all right, I'll let you go first on that, Arpin. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> It's just a no. It's just I think it's a no on all all accounts. I mean, it's listen. I don't think. Well, yeah, Calgary would want to get rid of that contract. I don't think the Canadians should touch that contract until Huberto proves, um, proves that he can actually be accountable for his own performances. Listen, I mean, the guy, the guy basically was saying to anyone who would listen how Daryl Sutter was not the right coach for that team. The Calgary Flames go out, they fire Daryl Sutter, they hire a new coach. And now that coach is benching him in the third period of games, like in the you know the first quarter of the season. So, uh, could a change of scenery help Huberto? Maybe I would argue that a change of scenery was disastrous for Huberto already. Like we've yeah. already seen what a change of scenery does to this guy. Would he be a better fit in Montreal, perhaps? But the the potential for listen, we saw what Slavkovsky went through a couple of weeks ago when he wasn't playing all that well. We saw Suzuki when he wasn't playing all that well. Little mini storms, but pretty, you know, the Slavkovsky one was even, I'd say, a legitimate storm. You know, like it was like he had to he had to weather a little bit of a media storm. If they trade for Jonathan Huberto with that contract being who he is, the mm. language he speaks, where he's from, all of that combined, if he doesn't perform it's going to be soul-crushing pressure. It's just going to be massive, massive daily reminders of how you're not producing and this and that. And this. It's not something the Canadians should even consider touching. 
even if they could find a trade fit with the Flames, which they probably couldn't, that contract and just those circumstances is a big flat no for me. Yeah. And it's I think that it the argument of Huberdo from a hockey standpoint to Montreal, you could you can make sense. He's a great player. I think that yeah. he could uh you know he, he could find his way again in Calgary. He could you know he could have been a very good player in Montreal too. But to me, even before his struggles, I think that and just with all that history in Florida, signing an eight year eight year contract at 10.5 million mm-hmm. a year when when that deal kicks in when you're 30 years old uh to me that's that's right there it was a non-starter very very few players in the league will will uh you know will will get the chance or or in my view would have the benefit of the doubt of signing such a long contract at such a late age uh and and prove that they're going to be uh, that they're You're going to be up to that contract. So uh-huh. you mentioned the fact that since he left Florida, it hasn't been the same. Um, well, that's even more of a reason now. If 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 it was a dubious contract to start with, well, now it it it, it looks like like real complications, a real headache for the Flames. So of course, someone from Calgary would say, "Hey, how about Montreal gets him off our uh, our shoulders?" Yeah. Well, I think it's going to be very close to an unmovable contract. Although, I mean, there's been some some crazy bad deals who've been moved over the years, but still, it's mm-hmm. uh, he, he's going to have to redeem himself with this play somewhat to make him slightly more attractive for other teams. But this is such a big ticket: ten point five million, and he's the first year of an eight year deal. Man, that's uh, no. It's a no-go. It's a no-go. And I think, honestly, you know, Josh Anderson, say what you will, but he hasn't scored goal. Like, I I think last night he he drew his 14th penalty of the season. Leads the NHL. He's been effective. He just hasn't scored. It's not as if they have to dump him. Brendan Gallagher, this is the best we've seen Brendan Gallagher play. I hope he can keep it up for his sake. But Brennan Gallagher is not looking like a $6.5 million player even. He never will. But he's looking like someone who could at least come reasonably close to providing value like that. Like a $4 million player, let's say. Yeah. Like it's, it's, you know, he's, he's, he's looked really good. And he looks, he looks like a valuable member of this team right now. So it's, it's, yes, the Canadians would love to shed those contracts. I think under the right circumstances, They would do so. Uh, this is not the right. You don't shed those contracts for a worse contract. <laughs> That's really not the way you should go about it. So no, exactly. I'd rather keep that money and add a couple of millions more and and invest on on players that uh, you know well, seem to be like they're still players. on the upswing. Well, and invest on players that they're going to have to sign. Like let's yeah. not forget, like these these rookies, these young players. We talked about Guli and Slavkovsky. You know, at some point they're going to need contracts, and you know, as we've seen, these second contracts can be very pricey, depending on what happens between now and then. Obviously, but um, Canadians can't just be loose with their money; they do still have carry price on their books. It's not a, yeah. adding a second ten point five million dollar year player who at least would be playing, but would not be playing at that level. It just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, I'll just add that. Uh... 
just for William Nylander's sake, that uh, the public transport system in Montreal is quite nice. <laughs> you could get accustomed to the REM. Yeah, he, he, true. he would like it. All right. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everybody, for uh, sending us your questions. A uh, little, little reminder that uh, you can send them at, on our Twitter account. On our Twitter hand, uh, the, the, the handle is Basu and Godin. And the, uh, the email address is not that much more complicated Basu and Godin at gmail.com. Uh, so that wraps it up for today. We're going to be back on Friday. Uh, mm-hmm. with our Prospect Friday with uh, a few games also that will be added. Uh, we just talked about the uh, the Calgary Flames. They're going to be in town on Tuesday, so that's going to be interesting to see. Uh, there's going to be also a a return game, if we can use the, the, the soccer term, uh, with Vegas in town later on in the week, and then the Canadians will wrap it up on Saturday night uh, visiting the Boston Bruins, another Uh, return game this time at the TD Garden. So, uh, Arpin, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your time. Thank you. Have a great week, everyone. Talk to you on Friday.